going on, Village Church? <laughs> My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Uh, we're finishing up a series that we've been in this summer we're calling We Are His. And through the series, each week we looked at defining characteristics of God's people. And this week we're looking at how God's people respond and relate to the culture that we find ourselves in. We are His, so we outreach to others in His name. And as you probably guessed by the scripture reading, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. But to really understand what's happening in chapter 9, you have to see what's happening in chapter 8, that's before it, and what's happening in chapter 10, that's after it. In chapter 8, Paul is addressing the question that they had about whether or not it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. A topic that I think we all can relate to, right? Right? I don't know how many times I've bitten into a jack-in-the-box taco— and thought to myself, this meat is strange. <laughs> it might even be evil. Kind of tastes like it was sacrificed to Baal. Has a strong Zeus aftertaste, right? In reality, this probably isn't something you think about regularly. But even though the situation isn't relatable, the point that Paul makes is extremely applicable. In short, he answers the question by saying this. There's only one God. Idols are made up. They aren't little deities. They are nothing, and therefore, meat sacrificed to idol is no, idols is no different than any other meat. And they're free to eat the meat if they choose to. This was a morally neutral issue. But that freedom to eat all the meat came with restrictions. Because if them eating the meat troubles the consciences of the Christians around them, then they shouldn't eat it. They should restrain themselves from indulging I'm getting there. We, out of love, they limit their liberty for the sake of the people around them, right? Love limits their liberty. That's chapter 8. And in chapter 9, Paul gives us a good demonstration of this principle of self-restraint for the sake of another by using himself as an example, as we're going to see. And in chapter 10, Paul gives us a bad demonstration of this principle, showing that from the Old Testament, Israel wandering in the, in the wilderness, saying that their inability to, to control their appetites and to, to give themselves over to idolatry caused them to fall and die and not make it into the promised land. Then, at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, he says something that Christians love to quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But, 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 but just before this verse are another two verses that clarify exactly what Paul is talking about. And I'll read them all together so you can get the feel for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So in this, we see that Paul lived an outward-centered life, not seeking his own advantage, but did what was best for the most, that they may be saved. And this is the through line through this entire conversation. It's what we as individual Christians are invited into, and it's what we collectively as the church have been invited into. Lives that are only concerned about what we can get or what we can do for ourselves, but what we can get and what we can do for the people around us, all so that they may be saved. A life oriented around outreach. 
Now, with that as the overarching theme, we can look back at chapter 9 and see how, this pl- see how this plays out in three more specific ways. There's sacrificial outreach, there's flexible outreach, and intentional outreach. With that context, let's jump back in. Let's reread the first 15 verses of chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my, my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? If it was written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of the, any of these rights, nor am I writing, to, writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So in this, in this Paul just lays out five different reasons for the right that he has to be paid for his ministry that he's providing to the church in Corinth. The first reason is one in regards to his status as an apostle. That's verses 5 and 6. The second reason is an argument from tradition. That's verse 7. The third is from Scripture, that's verses 8 through 10. The fourth is religious tradition, that's verses 11 and 12. The fifth is a reason from Jesus himself, and that's verse 14. So after establishing this right, and in three different places, he says he'll refuse that right. Verses 12, verses 15, and as we'll see in verse 18. So in the flow of Paul's Paul's argument, he establishes establishes a right just so that he can lay it down. And this is broader than whether or not he should be uh, paid for, for ministry. This is an ethic that Paul applied to his entire life. And it's explicit in verse 12. He said he would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. He would suffer anything if it meant that it would give the gospel a better chance to advance. Paul was fine to make his life harder if it made his outreach easier. It's sacrificial outreach. The reason he let go of his freedom is because sometimes they did more harm than good. Now, our entire culture is built on our liberties. We have the right to earn and spend our money the way we want, the right to live where we want, the right to go where we want to go, the right to say the things that we want, and we enjoy a lot of freedom in these rights. And we can hold on to the tiniest things really tightly if we believe that we're entitled to them. You know how I know? Because I was at a four-way stop sign last night. And I pulled up, and another car pulled up, and stopped on the other side of the intersection 
about a full second after I've come to a stop, okay? So I ease off the brake, and I start to go into the intersection, and he slams on the gas and turns in front of me, and I got mad. I should have gotten mad because he's uh, endangering himself and the people around him. I should have gotten mad because there are rules, and we have to all abide by the rules, but that's not why I got mad. I got mad because it was my right of way. It was my right to go, and he took it away from me. And that's dumb. Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, is saying to us that it is possible to love those freedoms, to love those rights more than we should. They aren't wrong in themselves, but if they become an obstacle to the people around us, they have to be laid down. And that's all I was thinking about what this means for me or what this means for us. I couldn't think of many freedoms that were, were, were clinging on to so, so tightly that they're actively working against us. For us, I think it's a lot more subtle. We don't seem to have a problem raising money for good causes. We are a very generous church, and that's a, that's a good thing. We take the freedom we have with our money, and we use that freedom to lay our money down to care for and help the people around us. But, but what if there was an opportunity for us to do outreach, and that opportunity didn't ask for our money, it asked for us, for our time, for our energy. It asked you to go someplace inconvenient and do something uncomfortable. That's a lot harder for us to do. I think the danger for us, Village Church, is that we hold on to our time, our comfort, our conveniences so tightly that we stop outreach before it can even get started. Because we may not be okay with making our lives harder so that outreach is easier. Sometimes in the morning, before the kids wake up, I go downstairs and I brew a cup of coffee. I grab my Bible and I find my spot on my couch and I sit there. And I enjoy life. Things feel particularly good some mornings. It's quiet. It's peaceful. It's still cold in the house, so all I have is the warmth of God's smile on me. Until I hear little footsteps coming down the stairs. And my heart sinks. Because my two-year-old is up. He's climbed out of his crib, and he's coming downstairs with fire in his eyes and chaos in his heart. <laughs> I, my wife and I, we pray for the other toddlers in this class when we drop them off on Sunday mornings. <laughs> so when he wakes up, the paradise that I had created has been lost. My comfort is gone because another person has just entered into the picture. And nothing ruins my own comfort like having to care for someone else. More often than not, the biggest obstacle in the way of me reaching out to the people around me in the name of Christ is my concern for me. And if I can just say it out loud the way I say it to myself in my head, learning from, learning from Paul, the first step to outreach is for me to get over myself. Paul spent 15 verses giving us five reasons why he has the right to be paid. And it shows us that even our most deeply, tightly held rights aren't outside of the scope of having to be laid down for the sake of the gospel around us. Outreach, by definition, is outward and will require us to look away from ourselves for the sake of others. That's what Paul did when he refused to be paid by the church in Corinth. He would serve the gospel, but the gospel better if he didn't receive pay. 
And in verse 15, he tells us it was his boast. It was his joy to lay down this right. Let's read in verse 16, 16 through 18. He says, if, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have, re- I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. These verses give us an insight in how Paul viewed his own gospel preaching. He says for him, just preaching the gospel isn't anything in particular for him to be, boast, be, uh, be boastful about. Because he says, necessity has been laid on him. In Paul's mind, when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road and told him, you will be my witness, I have made you my servant, he didn't have a choice in the matter, and he hadn't had a choice since. That's why he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He's compelled to preach the gospel. It's involuntary. Now this created a bit of an issue for Paul. Because we can be compelled and forced to do things that we don't like to do. So how do we know that's not the case with him? So how, do, how does Paul show he doesn't preach the gospel solely because he has to? He preaches it free of charge. He added voluntary sacrifice to his involuntary service because that shows that he valued the gospel that he preached. That's joy-filled sacrificial outreach. We lay down our rights in the joy that we have in making the gospel visible. And that allows us to do what we see next. Let's read it, verse 19. He says, though, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So in this, we see Paul isn't just laying down his right to be paid. He's laying down his independence. He's laying down his autonomy. He says that even though he is free, he's made himself a servant. The word here is slave. Though he is free from all, he's become a slave to all in hopes in winning some of them. And what this means in particular is expanded on in the next verses. Let's read it, verses 20 through uh, through 23. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. You know what a slave does? his master tells him to. Paul laid down his life as a free man, doing what he wanted to do, going where he wanted to go, being where he wanted to be. He put that aside to become whatever the people around him needed him to become, that they might be saved. Paul knew how to be flexible. This is flexible outreach. We need to be aware of the different cultures we encounter and how to navigate them so that we aren't needlessly offensive. We need to be flexible. That makes a lot of sense when we do missionary work abroad. But what about when we do missional work here? The first thing I would know is that the the city of Irvine is becoming more and more culturally diverse. And And this means that if we are to effectively do outreach, we need to have the agility to bend and flex out of our own cultures to accommodate the people and cultures that are around us. 
So if I have my Southern California culture and my neighbor is Muslim, I'm not going to serve him pork if I have him over for dinner. I'm being flexible. But there's an element to that that's not as clear. Because more often than not, we find ourselves in places and in situations where cultural differences aren't as stark. 2004 was a big year for American cinema. There was Million Dollar Baby, there was Man on Fire, there was Spider-Man 2. There was also, this was also the year of the Passion of the Christ, and every church suddenly decided it was okay for Christians to watch rated R movies. <laughs> but all of these pale in comparison to the achievement of the coming-of-age drama Mean Girls. In it was this scene where the main character, a new kid in school, walked into the cafeteria. And it was divided into territories. There was a place for the jocks, the band geeks, the preppies, the wannabes, the JV cheer team. And what always struck me about this is how accurate it was. I could walk into my high school quad and I could draw up a map showing where all the cliques hung out. Everyone had a tribe. Everyone had a group. And I don't think that's something that we left behind in high school. We still have cliques, we still have tribes, and we still have our factions. They're just oriented around different things. So even though we may not leave our cities and we may not be talking about different cultures in a strict sense, there still will need to be some flexibility in our lives to accommodate the, the people around us so that we can better engage our communities. But what's really interesting about this is what Paul says in verse 20. Paul says... To the Jews, he became as a Jew. It's strange because by definition, Paul was a Jewish man. But if he says that he adapted to become as one of them, this shows us that Paul didn't see that as his core identity. He didn't see his identity as belonging to any of them. And that set him free to adapt to all of them. We can identify ourselves in an almost endless amount of categories. I'm black. I'm a father. I'm a 90s kid. I'm a faithful 49ers fan. All groups, all tribes that I can belong to, but my core identity is in none of them, and that allows me the flexibility I need to adapt. I'm an Inland Empire native, but when we moved down to Orange County, I traded in my lifted truck for a pair of rainbow sandals. We have to lay down our right to comfort before we can leave our comfort zone. That's what Paul's getting at. Because that's where outreach takes place. It's outside of our castles of our own safety. It's in shelters. It's in different cities. It's in parks. It's among people that aren't like us. This is telling us that outreach works best when we are immersed in the culture around us to the point where we can look around and say, we became as one of them. He didn't hold too tightly to who he felt he was. Instead, he adopted a lifestyle that was best suited for the people around him. He went where they went. He talked how they talked. He dressed how they dressed. He lived how they lived. He cared about their sensitivities regardless of whether or not he shared them himself. That's what he means when he says, to the weak, I became his weak. See, in the previous chapter, we learned that a, a weak conscience is one that thinks something is wrong even though it's not. He knew the things that they were sensitive to, and he respected them. But I think the point Paul is making goes further than even that. 
Remember, he started this by saying that though he is a free man, he became a slave to everyone. The audience would have heard this, uh, the audience of this letter would have seen this not only as a reference to independence as fr or freedom, but also a reference to status. He's a free man, but he willingly stepped down from that high status of free to a lower status of slave, serving, and did it with the aim of winning them to Christ. And another one of Paul's strategies for outreach starts to become really clear. He understood that the strongest position of influence for a Christian isn't to relate to the people around us as their superior but to lower our status to slave and serve. He didn't just become as they are, he became as they were and he served them there. I think our church really wants to do outreach well. I think we really have hearts to serve the people around us, but I think the issue here isn't so much that we don't want to meet the, meet the needs of our community. I think the trouble is that we be, can become so isolated that we don't know what they are. When we become as the people around us, when we turn away from only focusing ourselves and start to see them where they are, what they need, what they feel, and we can think about them in that way and in those terms, and we can, we can serve the needs that they have, all with the goal of winning them. That's, that's outreach. And I think it's worth pointing out the obvious pattern. Four times he says, I became in order to win. Then on the fifth time, he breaks the pattern by saying, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is a, a summarizing statement that pushes Paul's flexibility beyond the categories that he just listed. It went to all people everywhere. He's saying he'll do whatever it takes so that the people around him can share with him in Christ, even if it's at great personal cost to himself, even if it costs him his life and it did. Now, this isn't to say that we are endlessly accommodating. This is where cultural, cultural immersion can become dangerous. That's the reason for Paul's parenthetical statements in verses 20 and 21. He says that even though he became as under the law, he was not actually under the law. Even though he became as one outside of the law, he was actually still under the law of Christ. I don't become a thief so that I can reach thieves. I don't become a murderer so I can reach murderers. I don't become an idolater so I can reach idolaters. I don't become a Rams fan to reach Ram fans. <laughs> there are some things we just can't compromise on. These verses tell us that we shouldn't be too accommodating. There are limits. If in our attempt to become like the people around us, we compromise the message of the gospel or our obedience to Jesus, then we've gone too far. Because the integrity of the gospel and our personal obedience to Christ are both more important than any kind of cultural adaptation could be in ever winning souls. But Paul is also saying that if we stay within those boundaries, there's place for creativity. And even though we may not have many cultures to diverse and to flex to, I think if we were to become as they are, we first need to be where they are. And so that maybe means that you're hanging out in your front yard. Maybe it's getting involved in, in PTA. Maybe it's throwing a block party. Maybe it's taking a walk around your, your neighborhood. It's being where you are and engaging the people that God has placed around you. Being is one of them, 
informs how we should serve them. Augustine called this thinking sympathetically, and he described it like this. A person who nurses a sick man becomes, in a sense, sick himself, not by pretending to have a fever, but by thinking sympathetically how he would wish to be treated if he were sick himself. This is stepping into what it feels like to be the people around you. This is stepping into what it feels like to be a single mother, thinking sympathetically about what those people might need and then working to meet that need like people in this church have done. Now, this isn't possible if we don't know our communities. And if I can just give you a, a, a first and very practical step, a very practical step as we move to impact our community for the sake of Christ, I think we can start with just by learning their names. Call the people around you by name. There's a cashier at Ralph's that loves my kids. Her name is Jamie, and she works two jobs. My gardener's name is Felipe, and, and he works in the States so that he can send money back home to his family in Mexico. I think calling people by their name reminds us that the world doesn't just revolve around me. There are other people around, and we're called to adapt and be among these people so that they might be saved. Now let's hit pause for just a second. Because if you're thinking like I'm thinking, you see a problem here. I'm nowhere in it. Concerned for my needs, my wants, my ambitions, my comforts, the things that I want to do, that's, that's nowhere in here, Paul. You're asking me to give up a lot. You're asking me to lay down a lot. And Paul sees this coming, and so he offers some motivation. Verses 24 through 26. Do you not know that in a race all runners run? but only, only one received the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Here, Paul dives straight into metaphor using something they would have been really familiar with. The city of Corinth was very close to the home of the Isthmian Games. These games are one of four ancient athletic competitions, the Olympics being one of the other three. And with this most likely in mind, he, rem in mind, he reminds them of these athletes. They all run, and they all, but only one receives the prize. And then we have the only imperative in this entire chapter. He says, run so that you may obtain it. Live the Christian life under the reality that in the end there's reward, like an athlete training for a race. Then he pushes the metaphor further. Because as the athlete trains for the race, they exercise discipline, he says, in all things. There's tons of examples of this. But one athlete that's known for his discipline is the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tom Brady. His diet plan consists of some basic tenets. Avoid processed foods, added sugars, artificial sweeteners, trans fats, caffeine, MSG, alcohol, iodized salt, dairy, nightshade, vegetables, most oils, and most foods containing soy, GMOs, or gluten. Don't combine fruit with other foods. Don't combine high-protein high protein meats, uh, meat, fish, etc., with carb-heavy foods, brown rice, bread, etc. But lest you think that his diet is too restrictive, he says, if I'm craving bacon, I have a piece. 
just one. Which might be the most impressive part of it all, because I don't think my entire life I've had just one piece of bacon. <laughs> but Tom Brady has won seven NFL championships. He was the MVP in five of them. He's won the NFL MVP three times. He was the AP Comeback Player of the Year in 2009. He was twice the AP Offensive Player of the Year. In 2021, ESPN awarded him the Best Male Athlete Award. He just turned 45. Tom Brady looks at all of his sacrifice and then all of his accomplishments and says, worth it. Paul would look at it and say, perishable. And he'd turn to me, probably while I'm eating bacon, and say, Tom refuses so much immediate pleasure for perishable achievement. You can't do that and more for something eternal? Am I so short-sighted that I can't let go of my pleasure now and my comfort now and my ease now in the moment for something greater in the future? Something greater now. This is the purpose we run. This is why we forego so many of the things that we can have now, so many things that we cling to now. It's because we're convinced that if we do, there is something greater. So we run with the aim of obtaining the prize. And context tells us what this prize is. It's sharing in the joy of the gospel as people are saved. That's why we sacrifice. Paul has purpose. His life didn't meander through aimlessly. His choices that he makes are purposeful. He doesn't just swing at air. There's an intentionality to the life that he lives and the rights that he surrenders. And it's an example given to us so that we can move our lives and live our lives with purpose, with intentionality, not aimless, but having a goal in mind. Outreach doesn't just happen. If we don't exert ourselves to pursue it, we'll settle into self-centered indifference. This is intentional outreach. It's life-oriented outreach. God has wired us to be able to exercise tremendous amounts of self-restraint and discipline if we think the end is worth it. There's a link in our hearts between our level of effort and the value we place on the prize. So the question is, do we value the prize? Let's finish up verse 27. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is some violent language from Paul. The word here for discipline means to give a black eye. He beats himself into submission into self-restraint and not exercising all of his rights or grasping at all of his entitlements so that he isn't disqualified. Now, this could be troubling because it can seem to suggest that Paul worries about losing his salvation. But the word here for disqualified is an important one. It means that something is shown to be counterfeit or empty. So what he's talking about when he talks about disqualification isn't the potential to lose your salvation, it's the potential to have a counterfeit salvation. You never had it in the first place. Paul is saying that if he can't or doesn't exercise control over his body, there's a chance that his saving faith wasn't actually saving faith at all. 
So Paul, part of Paul's exhortation here from, uh, is a positive one. Run with the reward in mind. The other part of exhortation is a warning. Discipline your body so that you can prove your faith is real. Both serve the same objective. To underscore the encouragement to run to obtain the prize. We discipline our lives so that we are willing, so that we are living in the most efficient and effective way possible to win souls. But remember where we started. This is what Paul would ultimately refer to when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We lay aside our rights and let go of our status. We become like the people around us so that we can serve them and hope that they may be saved. Why? Because Jesus did. It was Jesus that set aside his status in heaven. It was Jesus that emptied himself and became a servant of all. It was Jesus that went to weddings and into people's homes and he shared meals. It was Jesus that became one of us so that he can take away our sin and die on the cross to bear our guilt. It was Jesus that he became one of us so that he can die in our place. It was Jesus that did all of this so that he could save some. This is what we imitate. This is the model. We lay down our lives for the people around us because he has laid down his life for us. We've talked a lot about how Paul did outreach because he gave himself as an example. But make no mistake about this. Jesus is the model and the gospel is the message. And we are his, so we outreach to others in his name. This brings us to our good news statement for this morning. Jesus laid down himself to save us. And we can share in his joy by laying down ourselves to save others. I want to be that kind of person. I, and I think we want us to be that kind of church. The church that doesn't seek its own advantage. That continually looks outside of itself for ways and opportunities to serve. That lays itself down for the sake of others. That moves into neighborhoods in schools and workplaces and adopts missional lifestyles, bringing the gospel so that people might be saved. A church that using the model of Jesus and staying submitted to Jesus thinks sympathetically and becomes all things to all people so that we might save some of them. Let's, let's pray for Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for, for him not clinging to his, his rights and his entitlements and his status and his privileges in heaven, but emptying himself and coming down to be like us, to walk among us so that he can die on the cross for us. I pray that the, the weight of that would settle into our souls, that it would settle into our lives, and that we would become so infatuated with it that we'd want nothing more than to model it on our blocks and in our neighborhoods, at work, at the grocery store, Father. I pray that, that, that your sacrifice would push us out of our, a life of uh, complacency or apathy or indifference or comfort and move us into places that are uncomfortable and inconvenient knowing that it's worth it. That you've entrusted us with the best news in the entire world and given us the, the greatest mission that the universe had ever seen, and I pray that we would joyfully be participants in that, that we'd feel the privilege and honor of what you've, what you've given us by your grace.
pray for us here, that you'd help us to think sympathetically around the people around us, so we can see our neighbors, that we can see the people that we encounter, and that you would help us to see what they need, so that we can meet those needs and bring the gospel with us so that they might be saved. Pray for our, our neighborhoods and our communities. I pray for the places that we're, be, we're going to be going. I pray that you prepare, prepare the way. I pray these things in your son's name.